And this is they would not incur the displeasure of a holy and jealous God and have their souls defiled and destroyed by these errors. On the contrary, to endeavor to have their minds and understandings enlightened with the knowledge of the truths of Christ and mysteries of his gospel, and their hearts warmed with the love of them, so that being through grace established in the belief of the truth, they may not be as children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him which is the head, even Christ, and striving to refrain and keep themselves from every wicked, offensive, and backsliding course, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly, blameless and harmless as the sons of God, without rebuke, adorning the gospel of Christ with a conversation becoming the same. So shall they thereby glorify God and transmit a faithful testimony for the despised truths of Christ to posterity, that so there may be a seed to do service unto him in these lands and make his name to be remembered through all generations. Part 3 the Presbytery having in the preceding pages exhibited their testimony against both church and state, as now established in these isles of the sea, and therein discovered the reasons why they are obliged to disapprove of both, proceed next to take notice of some of the parties that have made the most specious appearances for reformation in this land since the Revolution, of which that party, commonly known by the name of secession, are not the least remarkable. It is vast pity, and it is with grief and lamentation, that the Presbytery find themselves, in point of duty, obliged to lift up a testimony against the forementioned party, considering that they have made a professed appearance under a judicial banner displayed for truth and a covenanted work of reformation, and have, in reality, showed much zeal in opposing a variety of errors in doctrine, corruption, and discipline in government, most prevalent in the National Church of Scotland, have contributed to vindicate some of the most important truths and doctrines of the Christian faith that have been openly impugned in this day of blasphemy and may have been instrumental in turning many to righteousness and reviving the exercise of practical godliness among not a few. But as Paul withstood Peter to the face and testified against his dissimulation, though both of them were apostles of our common Lord and Savior, so it still remains duty to testify against the most godly and such as may have been very useful to the church in many respects, insofar as they have not showed themselves earnest contenders for the faith once delivered to the saints, but have dealt treacherously with God in the concerns of his glory. It is therefore with just regret they proceed to observe that they are obliged to testify against this party designated first by the title of the Associate Presbytery and then that of the Associate Synod, and that particularly for their error in doctrine, treachery in covenant, partiality, and tyranny in discipline and government. It may seem first strange to see a charge of error advanced against those who made the countenancing of error in the judiciaries of the established church one principal ground of their secession therefrom. 
but by taking a narrower view of the principles and doctrines which they have roundly and plainly asserted and endeavor to justify in their printed pamphlets anent civil government to the reception and belief of which they zealously inculcate upon their followers, it will appear that their scheme is so far from tending to promote the declarative glory of God and the real good of human and religious society or the church of God, which are the very ends of the divine ordinance of magistracy, that it is not only unscriptural, but anti-scriptural, contrary to the common sentiments of mankind, and introductive of anarchy and confusion in every nation, should it be thoroughly adopted, and therefore ought to be testified against. The sum of their principles anent civil magistracy may be collected from these few passages to be found in a print entitled Answered by Answers by the Associate Presbytery to Reasons of Dissent, etc., page 70. Quote, this divine law not only endows men in their present state with a natural inclination to civil society and government, but it presents unto them an indispensable necessity of erecting the same into some form as a moral duty, the obligation and benefit whereof no wickedness in them can lose or forfeit. Page 74. Whatever magistrates any civil state acknowledged were to be subjected to throughout the same. Page 50. Such a measure of these qualifications, scriptural, and duties cannot be required for the being of the lawful magistrate's office, either as essential to it or as a condition of its sine qua non, or without which one is not really a magistrate, however far sustained as such by civil society, for then no person could be a magistrate unless he were so faultlessly. The due measure and performance of scriptural qualifications and duties belong not to the being and validity of the magistrate's office, but to the well-being and usefulness thereof. Page 87. The precepts already explained are a rule of duty towards any who are and while they are acknowledged as magistrates by the civil society. Nothing needs be added for the clearing of this but the overthrow of a distinction that has been made of those that are acknowledged as magistrates by the civil society into such as are so by the perceptive will of God and such as are so by his providential will only, which distinction is altogether groundless and absurd. All providential magistrates are also perceptive, and that equally in the above respect, as to the origin of their office. The office and authority of them all, in itself considered, does equally arise from and agree unto the perceptive will of God. Page 88. The precepts already explained, Proverbs 24:21, Ecclesiastes 10:4, Luke 20:25. 20, Romans 13, 1 through 8, Titus 3, 1, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 18, earlier referenced, are a rule of duty equally toward any who are, and while they are acknowledged as magistrates by the civil society, they are and continue to be a rule of duty in this matter, particularly to all the Lord's people in all periods, place, and cases." Unquote. These few passages that we have read, containing the substance of seceders' principles on the head of civil government, may be reduced to the following particulars. 1. They maintain the people to be the ultimate foundation of magistracy, and that as they have a right to choose whomsoever they please to the exercise of civil government over them. 
So their inclinations, whether good or bad, constitute a lawful magistrate without regard to the divine law. Number two, that the law of God and the scriptures of truth has no concern with the institution of civil government, but only adds its precept, enforcing obedience upon the conscience of every individual under the pain of eternal damnation to whomsoever the body politic shall invest with a civil dignity, and that without any regard to the qualifications of person or office. Number three, whomsoever the representatives of a nation do set up are lawful magistrates. Again, we are reviewing the substance of the seceders' principles on the head of civil government. Number three, whomsoever the representatives of a nation do set up are lawful magistrates, and that not only according to the providential, but according to the preceptive will of God also in regard that God, the Supreme Governor, has prescribed no qualifications in his word as essential to the being of a lawful magistrate, nor told what sort of men they must be that are invested with that office over his professing people, though it is confessed that there are many that are necessary to the well-being and usefulness of that office. And therefore, point number five, that no act or even habitual series of the greatest wickedness and maladministration can forfeit the person's right to the people's subjection for conscience' sake, considered as individuals, while the majority of a nation continue to recognize and own his authority. The absurdity of this scheme of principles may obviously appear at first view to every unbiased mind that is blessed with any competent measure of common sense and discretion, and tolerable knowledge of divine revelation. That magistracy is a divine ordinance, flowing originally from Jehovah, the supreme and universal sovereign of heaven and earth, is the ultimate foundation thereof, cannot be denied. Neither is it to be doubted, but the Lord has lodged a power and right in the people of choosing and setting up those persons that shall exercise civil government over them, and to whom they will submit themselves. But then, while God has lodged this power in the people of conveying the right of civil authority to their magistrates, he has at the same time given them positive and unalterable laws according to which they are to proceed in setting up their magistrates. And by the sovereign authority of the great lawgiver are they expressly bound to act in agreeableness to these rules without any variation, and that under the pain of rebellion against him, who is king of kings and lord of lords. The presbytery, therefore, testify against this scheme of seceding principles, calculated in order to inculcate a stupid subjection and obedience to every possessor of regal dignity, at the expense of trampling upon all the laws of God respecting the institution, constitution, and administration of the divine ordinance of magistracy. Particularly, particularly, this opinion is one contrary to the very nature of magistracy as described in the scriptures of truth, where we are taught that all authority to be acknowledged of men must be of God and ordained of God. The divine ordination of magistracy is the alone formal reason of subjection thereto, and that which makes it a damnable sin to resist. 
So the Apostle teaches Romans 11, 1, etc., quote, There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Not only is it the current sentiment of Orthodox divines upon the place, but the text and context make it undeniably evident that by power here is understood not a natural but a moral power, consisting not only in an ability but in a right to command. Which power is said to be ordained of God as importing not merely the proceeding of the thing from God providentially, but such a being from God as carries in it his instituting or appointing thereof by the warrant of his word, law, or precept. So, that that power which is to be owned as of God includes these two particulars, without which no authority can be acknowledged as God's ordinance, institution and constitution, so as to possess him who is God's minister with a moral power, in the divine institution of magistracy, it is contained not only the appointment of it, but the defining the office in its qualifications in form in a moral sense, prescribing what shall be the end and what the measure of its authority and how the supreme power shall rule and be obeyed. Again, the constitution of the power or the determination of the form or investiture of the particular person with the government is of God. Hence our Savior, John 10.35, in his application of these words in the Psalms, I said, ye are gods, to magistrates, shows how they were gods, because unto them the word of God came. That is, by his word and warrant he authorized them. His constitution is passed upon them, who are advanced by men according to his law and his word. When therefore a nation acts according to divine rule in the molding of government and advancing of persons to the exercise of it, there the government and governors may be said to be ordained of God. But that government that is not consonant to the divine institution and those governors that are not advanced to the place of supreme rule in a Christian land by the people regulating themselves by the divine law cannot be said to be the powers ordained of God. It is not merely the conveying the imperial dignity by men unto any particular person that constitutes the power to be of God, but because, and insofar as this is done by virtue of a warrant from God, and in agreeableness to his law, that the action has the authority of God upon it. Hence, if in this matter there is a substantial difference from or contrariety to the divine rule, then there is nothing but a contradiction to God's ordinance. This must needs be granted, unless it is maintained that God has wholly left the determination of this ordinance to men absolutely and unlimitedly, giving them an unbounded liberty to act therein according to their own pleasure, which is most absurd. From the whole it follows that more is requisite than the inclinations of any people to constitute a lawful magistrate such as can be acknowledged God's ordinance. That power which in its institution and constitution is of God by his law, can alone challenge subjection, not only for wrath, but for conscience' sake. Number two. 
The Presbytery testify against this scheme of principles as being anti-scriptural and what in its tendency is destructive to the authority of the sacred oracles. Seceders maintain that the people without regard to scriptural qualifications have an essential right to choose whom they please to the exercise of civil government and that whomsoever they choose are lawful magistrates and thus make the great ordinance of magistracy dependent upon the uncertain and corrupt will of man. But that this anarchical system is not of divine authority, but owes its origin to their own invention, appears from the following texts of Holy Writ, besides others. Exodus, chapter 18, verse 21. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers. This council of Jethro was God's council and command to Moses, in the choice of magistrates, supreme and subordinate, and discovers that people are not left to their own will in this matter. It is God's direction that the person advanced to rule must be a man in whom is the Spirit. Numbers 27.18 which Deuteronomy 34.9 interprets to be the spirit of wisdom, i.e. the spirit of government, fitting and capacitating a man to discharge the duties of the magistrical office to the glory of God and the good of his people. Without this, he ought not to be chosen. Deuteronomy 1.13 says, Take ye wise men and understanding and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. Here is a precept directing the people in their choice. They not, must not be children nor fools. If so, they are plagues and punishments instead of scriptural magistrates who are always a blessing. And they must be men of known integrity and affection to the real welfare of Israel, not such as are known to be haters of and disaffected to the Israel of God. Again, the express law of the king is that he must be one of the Lord's choosing. Look at Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 14 and 15. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee, thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, who is not thy brother. Hence, though Christians have a right to set a king over them, yet it is evident they are not left at liberty to choose whom they please, but are in the most express and positive terms limited and circumscribed in their choice to, of him whom the Lord their God shall choose. And this divine choice must certainly be understood in a large sense of a person of such a character, temper of mind, and qualifications as God pointed out to them in his law, particularly in the text before cited. For whatever God's word approves of and chooses, that God himself chooses. And in the text before, as the person is further described, both negatively and positively, he must be a brother, which relation is not to be confined to that of kindred or nation, but especially respects religion. 
He must not be a stranger, an enemy to the true religion, but a brother in respect of a cordial embracing and sincere profession, so far as men can judge, of the same cause of religion, and so one of whom it may be expected that he will employ his power and interest to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This precept respects the office and points at the very deed of constitution, and in the most positive manner restricts not only the people of the Jews, but every nation blessed with the light of divine revelation in their setting up of civil rulers, pointing forth on whom they may, and on whom they may not, confer this honorable office. The same truth is confirmed by Second Samuel 23, verses 2, 3, and 4. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me. The God of Israel said, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So Job 34, verses 17 and 18. Shall even he that hateth right govern? Is it fit to say to a king, Thou art wicked, and to princes ye are ungodly? In which words... While Elihu is charging Job with blasphemy in accusing God of injustice, declaring that if he made God a hater of right and impeached him of injustice, he did in effect blasphemously deny his government, universal dominion, and sovereignty in the world. It is not only supposed, but strongly asserted and affirmed that he that hates right should not govern. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1, 4, and 5. If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that is able to judge between his brethren? All these texts, which are plain, positive moral precepts, whereby God hath set boundaries about his own ordinance, that it be not corrupted by men, as they demonstrate what magistrates ought to be and prove that they cannot be of God's ordaining who have not these qualifications, so they evince that scriptural qualifications are nothing less necessary and essential to the being of a lawful scriptural magistrate than the consent of the people, and consequently do sufficiently overturn this anti-scriptural scheme. Seceders indeed grant that God hath declared his will concerning the choice of magistrates in the above and such like precepts, but from their granting these scriptural qualifications to be only advantageous to those that have them and necessary to the well-being and usefulness of lawful magistrates and at the same time denying them to be necessary to the being thereof, it necessarily follows as the consequence of their sentiments that they allow civil society a negative over the supreme lawgiver in this matter, and in so doing exalt the will and inclination of the creature above the will of the Creator, which is the very definition of sin. Say they in the forequoted pamphlet, page 80, quote, It is manifest that the due measure and performance of scriptural qualifications and duties belong not to the being and validity of the magistrate's office, but to the well-being and usefulness thereof, unquote. How easy is it here to turn their own artillery against themselves and split their argument with a wedge of its own timber? For if, as it is granted, scriptural qualifications are essential to the usefulness of the magistrate's office, they must also be necessary to the being thereof, otherwise it is in itself quite useless. 
and if in itself useless with respect to the great ends thereof without the due measure of scriptural qualifications it cannot then be the ordinance of God in regard it must not be supposed that a God of infinite wisdom and goodness who does nothing in vain has instituted an ordinance for the good of his people in subservancy to his glory which yet in itself as to its being in essence is useless and of no profit nor advantage to them and as for their comparison of the magistrate's office to other common and ordinary places and relations among men, the parallel will not hold. No, not for illustration, far less for a proof of their doctrine. Nor is there any comparison unless they can prove that God in his word has as plainly and positively required men to be so and so qualified before it is lawful for them to enter into or for others to put them in such places and relations as he has done with regard to magistracy. This is indeed <clears throat> the scope and end of their whole scheme. To derogate from, degrade, and lessen the dignity of this great ordinance of magistracy, allowing it no more than what is common to men in general in other inferior states and ordinary businesses of life, alleging, quote, that these qualifications, which they grant God as prescribed in his word, are only advantageous to them that have them, Unquote. And that at the hazard of evidently opposing and contradicting the intention of the Spirit of God in the above text of Scripture, which imply a specialty and particular appropriation to kings and rulers in their office. Again, this principle either, as above said, denies magistracy to be God's ordinance instituted in his word, or then says that he has instituted ordinances in his revealed will without prescribing any qualifications as essential to their being, but entirely left the constitution of them to the will of man. But how absurd is this, and derogatory to the glory of God and all his perfections, who is a God of order, once to imagine that he has set any of his ordinances either as to matter or manner upon the precarious footing of the pure will of wicked and ungodly men? The smallest acquaintance with divine revelation will readily convince that he hath not. It may as well, and with the same parity of reason, be refused that there are any qualifications requisite as essential to the being and validity of the office of the ministry but only necessary to its well-being and usefulness, and therefore is as lawful in its exercise in the want of these qualifications as the ordinance of magistracy is accounted to be. But how contrary is this to Scripture? Titus 1, 7 and 8, 1 Timothy 3, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, etc., now, comparing these with the above-cited texts respecting the qualifications of magistrates, it appears that the qualification of the magistrate are required in the same express and as strong terms, if not also somewhat more clearly, as the qualifications of the minister. And seeing a holy God hath made no difference as to the essentiality of the qualifications pertaining to these distinct ordinances, it is too much presumption for any creature to attempt doing it. Both magistrate and minister are, in their different and distinct spheres, clothed with an equal authority from the law of God. 
have subjection and obedience equally under the same pains required to them respectively. As Deuteronomy 17, 9-13 And thou shalt come unto the priests the Levites and unto the judge that shall be in those days and inquire and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. And thou shalt do according to the sentence which they of that place which the Lord shall choose shall show thee and thou shalt observe to do according to all that they inform thee, according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall tell thee, thou shalt do. Thou shalt not decline from the sentence which they shall show thee to the right hand nor to the left. And the man that will do presumptuously and will not hearken unto the priest that standeth to minister there before the Lord thy God, or unto the judge... Even that man shall die, and thou shalt put away the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear, and do no more presumptuously. Also Second Chronicles 19, verses 5 to 11. And he set judges in the land throughout all the fenced cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Take heed what ye do, what ye do, for ye judge not for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. Moreover in Jerusalem did Jehoshaphat set of the Levites and of the priests and of the chief of the fathers of Israel for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies when they returned to Jerusalem. And he charged them, saying, Thus shall ye do in the fear of the Lord, faithfully and with a perfect heart. And what cause soever shall come to you of your brethren that dwell in their cities, between blood and blood, between law and commandment, statutes and judgments, ye shall even warn them that they trespass not against the Lord. And so wrath come upon you and upon your brethren. This do, and ye shall not trespass. Both magistrate and minister are, in their different and distinct spheres, clothed with an equal authority from the law of God, have subjection and obedience equally under the same pains required to them respectively. And the qualifications of both, as above stated and determined with equal preemptoriness, making them no less essential to the being and validity of the one than the other. And this being the case, <clears throat> it is not easy to understand how seceders will reconcile their principles and that civil government with their principle and practice in separating from an established church or ministry whose constitution they acknowledge to be good, and who, being presbyterial, presbyterially ordained, are also still countenanced by the body of the people. Surely, had they dealt fairly, honestly and impartially in the matters of God, they would have acted in this case agreeably to their declared principle, page 79 of their pamphlet. Quote, The passages holding forth these qualifications and duties of magistrates do not by the remotest hint imply that if, any, if in any wise they be deficient in or make defection from the same, their authority and commands, even in matters lawful, must not be subjected unto and obeyed. Unquote. Etc. Certainly, according to this, all the deficiencies, defections, and maladministrations in the church 
could never have been a warrantable ground, which yet they make the only ground, of their separation from her. But on the contrary, they should still have continued in communion with her and subjection to her in matters lawful in a way of testifying, quote, against the same and essaying their reformation by all means that were hebel for them. Seceders must either grant that such was their duty and so of themselves condemn their separation as an unwarrantable act, or else deny that the qualifications of the magistrate and minister are required in the same expressed terms in Scripture, that both are clothed with an equal, though distinct, authority, and that subjection and obedience are under the same pains enjoined to both, and consequently say that it is less dangerous to cast off, condemn, and disregard the authority of a church than that of the state. While yet, according to their scheme, civil authority is entirely resolved into and depends purely upon the changeable will of civil society. But it is presumed they will allow that ecclesiastical authority is derived and flows from and depends entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone, the glorious judge, lawgiver, and king of his church. So that, according to them, this being of a far more noble extract and original, it must be a far more dangerous consequence to condemn and cast off it than the other. Again, as this doctrine gives unto men a negative over the Holy One of Israel, it also opens a wide door for introducing and enforcing the cause of deism, already too prevalent. For if all who are set up by civil society, however wicked, and void of the qualifications God has required, while they are acknowledged and submitted to by their constituents, must be equally regarded as God's ordinance with those who have those qualifications, then it will follow that the corrupt will of wicked men legitimates the magistrate's office and authority, not only without, but in contradiction to the preceptive will of God. And what is this? but to exalt man above God. In giving unto the universal sovereign and supreme lawgiver only a consultative power in the constitution of magistracy, while it ascribes to man an absolute and definitive power, whereby they have power to receive or reject the law of God, at least respecting magistracy, at pleasure, and their deed of constitution be equally valid when opposite as when agreeable unto and founded upon his righteous law. And sure, by the same reason that man may take a liberty to dispense with the authority of God in one point of his commanding will, he may also in another, until at last every part of it is rejected. It is but a contempt of the same authority, and he that offends in one point is guilty of all. Such are the absurdities that this their scheme leads to, though it is hoped the authors do not intend so. It may here only be necessary further to observe that among the other desperate shifts seceders are driven to in defense of their favorite notion, they say that scriptural qualifications cannot be essential to God's ordinance of magistracy or necessarily required as a condition of its sine qua non, for then it would be the same thing with magistr magistracy. 
nor can these qualifications be the condition, sine qua non, or without which one could not be a magistrate. For then it would be necessary that everyone were possessed of them faultlessly before he could be owned as a lawful magistrate, either of which they allege would be grossly absurd. But this plausible and fair-set argument of theirs, if it proves anything, will prove more that it is suppo- than it is supposed they themselves will grant, and consequently proves nothing at all. For the same gross absurdity may, with equal reason, be inferred from maintaining that a due measure and performance of Scripture qualifications and duties are essential to any other of God's ordinances, and so that these are the ordinances itself. For instance, they might as well reason, as some have justly observed already, that scriptural qualifications are scriptural qualifications are not essential to a lawful gospel minister, for then it would be the same thing with the ministry itself. Nor can it be a condition without which one is not really a minister unless he were so faultlessly. And thus they have at once stripped not only all of the race of Adam that ever exercised that office, but themselves also of any real mission as ministers, unless they have assumed the Pope's infallibility and are advanced to the Moravian perfection. So although the scripture declares it essential to the true church that he hold that she hold the head, yet by their childish reasoning this would infer a conclusion big with absurdities, even that this qualification of a true church is the church itself. <clears throat> and in like manner it can no longer be admitted that faith in Christ and holiness are essential to the being of a true Christian, for that would be to make faith the same thing with a Christian and would infer that as in heaven only holiness is in perfection, so there alone Christians are to be found. Upon the whole, as the Lord has given an indispensable law respecting the constitution of kings, showing what conditions and qualifications are required of them, it undeniably follows as an established truth that Christianized nations must invest none with that office, but in a way agreeable to that law. And those alone, according to Scripture, are magistrates of God's institution, who are in some measure possessed of these qualifications. It is therefore an anti-scriptural tenet that nothing is requisite to constitute a lawful magistrate but the inclinations and choice of the civil society. Number three. The Presbytery testify against this system of principles because it has a direct tendency to destroy the just and necessary distinction that ought to be maintained between the perceptive and providential will of God and necessarily jumbles and confounds these together in such a manner as a man is left at an utter uncertainty to know when he is accepted and approved of God in his conduct and when he is not. That this is the scope of their principles is confessed, page 87 of their book of principles. Quote, Nothing needs be added, say they, for the clearing of this, but the overthrow of a distinction that has been made of those who are acknowledged as magistrates by civil society, into such as are so by the perceptive will of God, and such as are so by his providential will only, which distinction, they say, is altogether groundless and absurd. It will not be refuted, that all such perceptive magistrates are also providential. But moreover, all such providential magistrates are also preceptive, 
the office and authority of them all, in itself considered, does equally arise from and agrees to the preceptive will of God. Close quote. A doctrine most shocking in itself. How strange that Christians, from any consideration, will obstinately maintain a favorite opinion which is confessedly built upon and cannot be established, but at the expense of blending and confounding the preceptive and providential will of God, while the distinction thereof is clearly and inviolably established in the word of God. Although divine providence, which is an unsearchable depth, does many times and in many cases serve as a commentary to open up the hidden mysteries of scriptural revelation, yet where the law of God and the scriptures of truth is silent, their providence regulates not, is neither institutive nor declarative of God's will to be done by us, and where the said divine law doth ordain or deliver a rule to us in any case, their providence gives no relaxation, allowance, or countermand to the contrary. See G. on Magistracy in his excellent Discourse on Providence. That an overthrow of this necessary distinction for the sake of the above dangerous scheme cannot be admitted of in a consistency with a due regard to the authority of revealed religion, and that therefore the right and lawfulness of magistracy is not founded upon the providential will of God, though they are countenanced and supported by the majority of a nation, will partly appear from the following considerations. Number one, if there is no distinction to be made between the preceptive and providential will of God, then is providence equal in all respects to the rule of duty as much as the precept is. And so man should be left in an utter uncertainty. What is duty in regard of the opposition that is many times between providential dispensations and the precept? Nay, then it is impossible that man can be guilty of sin in transgressing the divine will because God infallibly brings to pass by his holy and overruling providence whatever he has decreed by his eternal purpose. Romans 9.17 and thus the Jews, in murdering the Son of God, should be acquitted from the charge of guilt and could not be said to transgress the divine will. Number two, if no distinction is to be made between the preceptive and the providential will of God, but providence is declarative of the precept, then is providence a complete rule without the written word. And this at once supersedes the necessity of divine revelation and derogates from the sufficiency and perfection of the scriptures of truth. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.